Good evening, class, and welcome to the Screwtape Letters. We are tonight embarking on Screwtape Proposes a Toast, and as usual, we've got a little music to listen to. It's a little bit different, so take a listen and see if you can figure out what this is and why we're listening to it. Any guesses on what that is or who the singer is? Well, you can probably tell that that is not King's College Cambridge Choir. Uh, in fact, it is a singer called Cliff Richard, who was the British answer, uh, more or less, to Elvis Presley, uh, breaking on the scene in 1958 and having huge popularity uh, then through the early 60s, and certainly someone that Lewis would have been familiar with uh, being on a college campus during that time period. And that brings us to one of the interesting facts about Screwtape Proposes a Toast, which is that it was written uh, almost 20 years after the Screwtape Letters, and a lot of things had changed very dramatically. Uh, remember, Screwtape Letters was written uh, right at the beginning of World War II, uh, while the Blitz was happening. Uh, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, written in 1959, uh, in a very, very different culture and time period. So as we get ready to unpack uh, some of that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Screwtape Letters and Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that is rooted in your word that they contain about what it means to follow after you. Lord, we pray that as we live in a culture that is beset with the schemes of the devil, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that we might annoy the devil by following you, Lord Jesus, more and more closely and living a boldly Christian life. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin, as usual, by uh, saying together our theme verse from the book of Ephesians about spiritual warfare. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And this is a very apt verse, uh, always, but it is particularly an apt verse uh, as we come to Screwtape Propose as a Toast, because as you will see, uh, many of the things that this verse encourages us to do are exactly the things that Screwtape and his toast is hoping that we will not do. So as we've said before, there are several reasons why we are studying this book at this particular time. And the first one is lessons on understanding the battle that we are in, realizing that there is a battle between good and evil, a battle between the forces of God and the forces of Satan um, that is playing out all around us. Sometimes that battle is hard to spot, other times it's more out in the open. But we need to remember that we're in a battle because when you are in a battle, you live differently than when you are not. Secondly, we are studying this book because it has great lessons for us about learning to think Christianly and developing a Christian worldview, something that we will again engage with Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Thirdly, there are some great lessons on the psychology of temptation. And this is kind of the idea of forewarned is forearmed. If you know how the enemy is going to seek to tempt you, you are much better able to be prepared for his attacks. Fourthly, we are looking at lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen our faith and reliance on Jesus Christ. Habits are so very important. And surprise, surprise, habits come up again in Screwtape Proposes a Toast. They are a subtext all through this. And one of the things that we can learn from this book is how very, very important our habits are and how we need to look at them and evaluate them in the light of the Word of God. And lastly, this book is full of lessons on how to live a boldly Christian life, a life that makes a difference for the gospel. And again, this is a theme in Screwtape Proposes a Toast, how Screwtape wants to make sure that no one lives a boldly Christian life. So with that, uh, we will rehearse again some of the habits from the last few letters, remembering that part of developing a habit is repetition. So from letter 28, the first habit, daily increase in conscious dependence upon God rather than on worldly hopes. This is such an important habit for us because our culture tells us that we should find our security in the things of this world and the hopes and aspirations of this world, of the steps of what it means to live a successful life. And unfortunately, many of our cultural steps uh, put us at odds with what the scriptures tell us, that we need to depend on God, we need to depend on him daily. And the more we depend on him and take risks 
for the gospel, the more we will grow in our faith. Secondly, fight against drabness and resentment at your situation in life. Screwtape would love for us to live dull, boring, uninteresting lives where we are full of resentment that we haven't been able to live a life that is more interesting. And what Screwtape reminds us is the truth that the scriptures, that when we are following Jesus, our life is not going to be drab that our problem and our resentment so often come from the frustration of our worldly hopes, from comparing ourselves to others according to worldly standards. Uh, it is a great reminder of that wonderful psalm, Psalm 73. The third habit, be on guard against your heart being too knitted to this world instead of to your true homeland. It is a reminder that we are made for another world, that our true home is that kingdom that is not made with hands. That stab of joy that we feel when we consider the presence of God, the wonder of heaven, the beauty of eternal life, uh, all of the wondrous qualities that are present in Christ. And the problem for so many of us is that we don't think about those things. We think about this world and the things that are uh, essentially like the Tower of Babel, the things that we have created to try to make us feel like we are gods. And those things can never fulfill and they are destined to lead us to disappointment. Fourthly, make time for music and prayer and literature that can point you toward unseen realities and God's kingdom. You'll remember in this letter that Screwtape says, one moment of beauty can sweep away decades of the devil's work. So it's a good reminder to us that truth, goodness, and beauty should be parts of our lives every day, because as we look at those things, we're reminded that God is their author and their source. Fifthly, beware of the illusion that politics or policies or any human progress can make heaven on earth. We need to be reminded of this because although we as Christians are encouraged to stand up for justice and what is right, we are never told to put our hopes in the things of this world. And any time a politician or a position or a cause becomes more important than sharing the gospel, um, we are on a slippery slope. Sixth, cultivate an understanding of safety that has more to do with being in the will of God than with your own personal comfort. Comfort is one of the most uh, seductive sins that we get used to our comfort and we don't want to be dislodged from it. And the problem with that is that that comfort becomes associated with our safety and we think that it is God's will for us to be comfortable. But the fact of the matter is that our comfort is supposed to be being in the will of God, being with him, being allied with him, following him wherever he leads us, even when those places are risky. Then from letter 29, be on guard against developing any kind of hatred, including hatred on behalf of others. In a time where there seems to be so much hatred in our country and in the world, this is a great reminder that as Christians, we are called not to hate 
but to love, to actively militate against hate, to seek after love, and to never allow hatred to take root in our lives. That we are to love our enemies, as Jesus said, not to hate them. Second, be wary of unresolved fear and shame and how they can lead to hatred. These kinds of disappointments in ourselves, experiences that we've had in the past, can lead us to a kind of hatred that is especially pernicious, that becomes a root of bitterness. And again, we are to root those things out, um, to keep short accounts, to seek to love all and to serve all. Thirdly, be prayerfully alert to the forces of good and evil at work in your life and in the world, rather than being ignorant. As Christians, we are commanded not to have our head in the sand, but instead to be aware of what is going on around us. Jesus tells us there are signs all around us uh, that we need to pay attention to, and they should be a reminder to us of making a priority of the things of the kingdom of God. Fourthly, understand and practice the true virtue of courage. Courage is a virtue that is so very important and one that Lewis says is the point of every virtue at the testing point. It is a reminder of what Screwtape has said over and over again. Let the patient feel any number of uh, feelings of things that should be done, things that should be uh, happening to make the world a better place, or even to follow Jesus and to think and feel about those things. But never, says Screwtape, let the patient act. And this is where courage is so important. Courage is what gets us from feeling and thinking to actually doing something. So courage is a virtue we all need to pray for and to cultivate. Fifthly, understand despair as a serious sin and avoid being seduced by it. It is all too easy to look around the world, as that quote we use at the end of class says, from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, and to embrace despair. But we are called by the scriptures to be people of hope and people of love, that we can never despair because Jesus has given his life for this world while we were yet sinners. And that is the most hopeful message that anyone could ever have. And we as Christians are the ones called to hold out that message to a hurting world. So we must never embrace despair. Sixthly, Live in the confidence that your ultimate safety is in Christ alone, not in building a foolproof network of precautions. Uh, this is another one of those slippery slopes that Screwtape specializes in, because in some ways precautions are important. We are not called to be foolhardy, but we are also called to remember that our trust and our safety and our hope is in Christ alone not in building a foolproof network of precautions. We are to be sensible, to have good sense, but we are never to trust that we can take enough precautions uh, to build a wall around us that keeps us safe. And indeed, we are never to have that wall around us because we are called to be on duty for the gospel. Then from letter 30. Choose to obediently do what you know is right, 
even when you are afraid. You'll remember in this letter that Screwtape berates Wormwood because the patient has been on duty uh, during an air raid, and even though he was terrified, he has acted courageously and done his duty and even more than was his duty. And the, the reminder to us is that sometimes it does take courage to do what we know is right, and we don't feel like we have the courage to do it, but we know that to be obedient is to act. And in those circumstances, we need to muster the inner fortitude to act in obedience to Christ, despite our fears. Secondly, practice perseverance, especially when you are fatigued, and be wary of false hopes of comfort. Screwtape lets us in on a little secret, which is that Satan and his minions love to go after us when we are fatigued, and that they love to take our desire for comfort uh, and use that to make us stop following Jesus just when we are on the brink of uh, completing what it is he's called us to. So in those times we're tired, we need to pray for perseverance, and we need to especially be wary of false hopes of comfort, the idea that giving up is somehow going to make things better. This is a place where we need fellowship, because as Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to uh, love and good works. We need that fellowship and encouragement. Thirdly, do not, let, do not let the horror of the evil that men can do cause you to doubt your faith or God's goodness. This is one of those subtle things that Satan loves for us to do, because the more that we look at the work of Satan and see his activity, the more likely we are to be horrified at the evil that there is in the world, and then we begin to doubt our faith and to doubt God's goodness or even his existence. But we are reminded by scripture that evil is a real thing, but that God has won that war uh, Satan has been defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ through the power of his blood and through the power of his resurrection from the dead. So even though we see great evil and because of media and technology, we see it more and more brought into our homes over screens, we must never despair and we must remember the goodness and the beauty of God and his kingdom. Fourthly, embrace a scriptural understanding of what is real, with a capital R, that encompasses spiritual, physical, and emotional reality. We need to remember that the things of God's kingdom are real. They may not be things that meet a cultural definition of reality that we can prove with our senses, uh, but we can show that there is truth and the reality of these experiences by opening our hearts and minds to the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a whole realm of unseen reality that the scriptures tell us about over and over again, a reality that endures and is eternal because it is God's reality. Fifthly, spoke, focus on spiritual realities that lead to joy and growth and refuse to embrace discouragement. Certainly, there's plenty out there that can lead us to be discouraged. 
we can see all of the things that are wrong with the world. And when we focus on those, we become more and more and more discouraged. If you listen to a steady diet of the news, you will become very discouraged. But the fact of the matter is, there's much that is good and beautiful all around us every day. And the reality of the kingdom of God, rather than our circumstances, is where we need to focus our attention. Because when we focus on that reality, as Paul does in the book of Philippians, written while he was in jail, he is full of joy. And then from letter 31 last week, that great letter uh, where Screwtape is horrified because a soul has slipped through the fingers of Wormwood and there's been a yowl of horror that goes all the way to the throne of Satan, uh, Screwtape's father below, that the soul has been lost. So the first habit is understand that your vision of spiritual reality is limited and therefore trust the witness of scripture for truth. Screwtape reminds us about all of the unseen things that when the patient meets with death, his eyes are opened to see the kingdom of God, to see Satan and his minions for who they are, and to see Jesus for who he is and the wonder of his glory. Secondly, live in the constant awareness that this mortal life is but a prelude to your eternal life with God. The patient realizes that all that he has experienced in this life has been but the chapter and opening page of that story, which as Lewis says, goes on chapter after chapter forever, with each chapter being better than the one before. Thirdly, take comfort from the fact that you are not alone on this pilgrimage. Screwtape reminds us that when the patient goes into eternal life, he not only sees Satan and his minions in Jesus, but he sees the angels and ministering spirits that have walked with him, that have intervened at crucial points in his life. And it is a reminder that even on this earthly pilgrimage, we are not alone. The angels, the great cloud of witnesses of the church triumphant are with us and surrounding us. Fourthly, cultivate a profound future hope rooted in the joy of the presence of Christ, where perfect love casts out fear. It is a reminder that we are destined for that glorious kingdom of God, where we will be with Jesus and where the joy and the love are so amazing that they are beyond human description. Fifthly, do not be led astray by the false realism of the world that denies the love of God as the center of the universe. All too easy, we, easily we believe the lie of Satan that this world is all there is, that what's real is in this world, and that heaven is just pie in the sky by and by. And there is so much that demeans our future hope. But as Christians, we are to live boldly into the reality that this life is not all that there is. And sixthly, rejoice in the self-giving love of God that seeks to set you free rather than to consume you as food. This letter 31 does a brilliant job of showing the difference 
between Satan's goals and God's goals. That God's goals are to love us, to set us free from sin, to be fully who we were made to be, made in his image and set free in the glorious liberty of the sons of God with gifts and to be able to experience love and joy and all of the fruit of the Spirit. Whereas Satan's aim is to get rid of all of everything that makes us unique, to consume us, to conform us to his image, to strip us of everything that is beautiful and good and true, and to feast only on uh, the sinfulness that can pervade our mortal life. God is the one who wants to set us free. Satan is the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy and to steal our very life. So that brings us to Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Um, we're going to take this in segments because it's a longer work than the letters are. So in the handout that I gave you in your email, um, there will be only um, the first two pages that we'll deal with tonight. So I'd encourage you, if you want to follow along with your PowerPoint, um, some editions of the Screwtape letters have Screwtape proposes a toast bound in at the end of them. So uh, whatever form you've got it, uh, get out your highlighter, get out your pen, and uh, get ready to dive in. So just a little bit of background, as we said earlier tonight, this uh, sequel to the Screwtape Letters was written in 1959, and it was actually published in the Saturday Evening Post, published in America uh, before it was published in Britain. And it is a very interesting work, and the, the idea is that there is the annual banquet of the Tempter's Training College. Remember, Wormwood was a recent graduate of that. Uh, that is uh, presided over by the principal, Slubgob, um, about whom Screwtape has said some pretty unflattering things over the course of the Screwtape letters. But Screwtape and Slubgob have made up, and so at this annual banquet, they are having a feast where they are feasting on the souls of those that have come into the kingdom of hell because of the labors of the tempters. So Screwtape as this dinner is coming to an end and the toasts are beginning, raises his glass for a toast where he makes commentary on the state of things. You might say it's a state of the union of how things are going for Satan and his minions. And it is a really interesting work. Um, again, it is eerily prescient. It seems almost prophetic about what is going on um, today, even though we are 41 years after this was written. Some of the themes that are in this toast are themes that Lewis develops more fully in his philosophical work, um, The Abolition of Man, which is one of the great works of Christian philosophy. Um, a lot of people are a little afraid of that work, uh, but it is one that is a rich gold mine that I would commend to you, especially if you're scuba diving. If you take it slowly and read it out loud, it is profound. 
The other thing that's interesting is the themes and the abolition of man, Lewis says he also addressed in a fictional form in his book, That Hideous Strength. That Hideous Strength is the last of the space trilogy, and it is a book uh, that is much like 1984. Um, it's a dystopian future novel, uh, and again, it is uh, uncanny how Lewis predicts so many of the things that will be going on in our culture that we're experiencing today. In fact, George Orwell reviewed that hideous strength very favorably some years before he wrote 1984, and many scholars think that Lewis's work influenced Orwell. So there also are some echoes of these themes in Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. So we're again just gonna be uh, skating on the surface of some of this, uh, but I would commend it to you. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that Lewis's uh, insights about culture, about the leveling of education down to the lowest common denominator, the uh, abandonment of studying things that led to life and freedom of inquiry and all those things, um, abandonment of the classics, uh, the self-esteem movement in schools, uh, narcissism, the clamor of rights, and the subversion of education and intellectual um, and the intellectual class causing co um, collapse from within. The idea that those who are intellectuals are going to trade in freedom of inquiry for the party line and that the education system is going to be subverted as a result. Does any of that sound familiar? And then there's this great quotation from Brenton Dickieson, um, a great Lewis expert who is a professor in England, who has a great blog called A Pilgrim in Narnia that I would commend to you. And here's what he says. More than the original Screwtape letters, perhaps, the toast is an incisive public critique of education, social politics, and cultural shifts and worldview. I also think Screwtape proposes a toast, gives us another angle to Lewis's The Abolition of Man. The world behind Screwtape's speech in 1959 is really the dystopia of men without chests. It is a critique that is still relevant today and possibly prophetic, at least for those who have ears to hear. And this is particularly interesting because some of you may be aware of the Jewish public intellectual, um, Andrew Claven, who uh, a couple of years ago went through a radical conversion to Christianity, partially through reading the works of C.S. Lewis. Um, and Claven is a um, commentator on what's going on in our culture right now. And just this week, uh, he wrote something uh, where he references men without chests. So it could hardly be more relevant uh, what Lewis is talking about in these works. So let's dive into Screwtape Proposes a Toast. The scene is hell at the annual dinner of the Tempter's Training College for Young Devils. The principal, Dr. Slubgob, has proposed the health of the guests. Screwtape, a very experienced devil who is the guest of honor, rises to reply. 
It is customary on these occasions for the speaker to address himself chiefly to those among you who have just graduated and who will very soon be posted to official temptorships on earth. It is a custom I willingly obey. I well remember with what trepidation I awaited my own first appointment. I hope and believe that each one of you has the same uneasiness tonight. Your career is before you. Hell expects and demands that it should be, as mine was, one of unbroken success. If it is not, you know what awaits you. I have no wish to reduce the wholesome and realistic element of terror, the unremitting anxiety which must act as the lash and spur to your endeavors. How often you will envy the humans their faculty of sleep. Yet at the same time, I would wish to put before you a moderately encouraging view of the strategical situation as a whole. Your dreaded principle has included a speech full of points, something like an apology for the banquet which he has set before us. Well, gentle devils, no one blames him. But it would be in vain to deny that the human souls on whose anguish we have been feasting tonight were of pretty poor quality. Not all the most skillful cookery of our tormentors could make them better than insipid. Oh, to get one's teeth again into a Farinata, a Henry VIII, or even a Hitler. There was real crackling there, something to crunch, a rage, an egotism, a cruelty, only just less robust than our own. It put up a delicious resistance to being devoured. It warmed your inwards when you'd got it down. Instead of this, what have we had tonight? There was a municipal authority with graft sauce. But personally, I could not detect in him the flavor of a really passionate and brutal avarice, such as delighted one in the great tycoons of the last century. Was he not unmistakably a little man, a creature of the petty takeoff, pocketed with a petty joke in private, and denied with the stalest platitudes in his public utterances, a grubby little non-entity who had drifted into corruption, only just realizing he was corrupt and chiefly because everyone else did it. Then there was the lukewarm casserole of adulterers. Could you find in it any trace of a fully inflamed, defiant, rebellious, insatiable lust? I couldn't. They all tasted to me like undersexed morons who had blundered or trickled into the wrong beds in automatic response to sexy advertisements, or to make themselves feel modern and emancipated or to reassure themselves about their virility or their normalcy, or even because they had nothing else to do. Frankly, to me, who have tasted Messalina and Casanova, they were nauseating. The trade unionist, stuffed with sedition, was perhaps a shade better. He had done some real harm. He had, not quite unknowingly, worked for bloodshed, famine, and the extinction of liberty. Yes, in a way, but what a way. He thought of those ultimate objectives so little. Towing the party line, self-importance, and above all, mere routine were what really dominated his life. But now comes the point. Gastronomically, all of this is deplorable, but I hope none of us puts gastronomy first. Is it not in another and far more serious way, full of hope and promise. 
Consider first the mere quantity. The quality may be wretched, but we never had souls of a sort in more abundance. And then the triumph. We are tempted to say that such souls or such residual puddles of once was soul are hardly worth damning. Yes, but the enemy, for whatever unscrutable and perverse reason, thought them worth trying to save. Believe me, he did. You youngsters who have not yet been on active duty have no idea with what labor, with what delicate skill, each of these miserable creatures was finally captured. The difficulty lay in their smallness and flabbiness. Here were vermin so muddled in mind, so passively responsive to environment, that it was very hard to raise them to that level of clarity and deliberateness at which mortal sin becomes possible. To raise them just enough, but not that fatal millimeter of too much, for then, of course, all would possibly have been lost. They might have seen, they might have repented. On the other hand, if they had been raised too little, they would very possibly have qualified for limbo, as creatures suitable neither for heaven nor for hell, things that having failed to make the grade are allowed to sink into a more or less contented subhumanity forever. In each individual choice of what the enemy would call the wrong turning, such creatures are at first hardly, if at all, in a state of full spiritual responsibility. They do not understand either the source or the real character of the prohibitions they're breaking. Their consciousness hardly exists apart from the social atmosphere that surrounds them. And of course, we've contrived that their very language should be all smudge and blur. What would be a bribe in someone else's profession is a tip or a present in theirs. The job of their tempters was first, of course, to harden these choices of the Hellward Roads into a habit by steady repetition. But then, and this was all important, to turn the habit into a principle, a principle the creature is prepared to defend. After that, all will go well. Conformity to the social environment, at first merely instinctive or even mechanical. How should a jelly not conform now becomes an unacknowledged creed or ideal of togetherness or being like folks. Mere ignorance of the law they break now turns into a vague theory about it. Remember, they know no history, a theory expressed by calling it conventional or Puritan, or bourgeois morality. Thus, gradually there comes to exist at the center of the creature a hard, tight, settled core of resolution to go on being what it is, and even to resist moods that might tend to alter it. It is a very small core, not at all reflective. They are too ignorant, nor defiant. Their emotional and imaginative poverty excludes that almost in its own way, prim and demure, like a pebble or a very young cancer. But it will serve our turn. Here, at last, is a real and deliberate, though not fully articulate, rejection of what the enemy calls grace. These, then, are two welcome phenomena. First, the abundance of our captures, however tasteless our fear, we are in no danger of famine. And secondly, the triumph, 
the skill of our tempters has never stood higher. But the third moral, which I have not yet drawn, is the most important of all. The sort of souls on whose despair and ruin we have, well, I won't say feasted, but at any rate subsisted tonight, are increasing in numbers and will continue to increase. Our advices from lower command assure us that this is so. Our directives warn us to orient all our tactics in view of this situation. The great sinners, those in whom vivid and genial passions have been pushed beyond the bounds, and in whom an immense concentration of will has been devoted to the objects which the enemy abhors, will not disappear, but they will grow rarer. Our catches will be even more numerous, but they will consist increasingly of trash. Trash which we should once have thrown to Cerberus and the Hellhounds as unfit for diabolical consumption. And there are two things I want you to understand about this. First, that however depressing it might seem, it really is a change for the better. And secondly, I would draw your attention to the means by which it has been brought about. It is a change for the better. The great and toothsome sinners are made out of the very same material as those horrible phenomena, the great saints. The virtual disappearance of such a material may mean insipid meals for us, but is it not utter frustration and famine for the enemy? He did not create the humans. He did not become one of them and die among them by torture in order to produce candidates for limbo or failed humans. He wanted to make them saints, gods, things like himself. Is the dullness of your present fare not a very small price to pay for the delicious knowledge that his whole great experiment is petering out? But not only that, as the great sinners grow fewer and the majority lose all individuality, the great sinners become far more effective agents for us. Every dictator or even demagogue, almost every film star or rock star, can now draw tens of thousands of human sheep with him. They give themselves, what there is of them, to him, and him to us. There may come a time when we shall have no need to bother about individual temptations at all, except for the few. Catch the bellwether, and his whole flock comes after him. Well, that's all we're going to take of the toast for tonight. Now to some habits from this first very rich section. Firstly, beware of cultural mere routine that numbs you to kingdom life. One of the themes of this toast is the dumbing down of creatures, uh, that people live shallow lives, that they don't think, they don't reflect, they're just creatures of their environment. And mere routine going through what people do, what's expected, what everybody else is doing, numbs you to the reality of a kingdom life. So we must beware of that. 
Uh, and again, as scripture says from 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And as Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, that Olivet Discourse, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. My friends, this is the same principle as uh, fiddling while Rome burns, playing the violin on the deck of the Titanic, whatever image appeals to you, that we need to be careful not to be seduced by the routine of our culture and fail to realize that uh, the kingdom of this world is pressing on us and we need to resist that in favor of the kingdom of God. The second habit, daily seek transformation and flee conformity to the social environment. And this is so important. Remember in the toast, Screwtape says, a jelly, how can it help but be conformed? And I'm afraid all too often, all of us, including myself, are too often like jelly. We haven't thought robustly about what it means to live a life following Jesus. We get conformed all too easily, and we must fight against that every day. Romans 12, that brilliant chapter, uh, read the whole thing when you have time, but the second verse, so apt. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what's implied in this verse is that when we are not doing this when we are actually being conformed, then we are unable to understand the will of God. And then secondly, uh, that great truth from 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It reminds me of an old, old Amy Grant song, Are You Living in an Old Man's Rubble? All too often, we have been purchased with the blood of Christ and made new creations, and yet we insist in dwelling in our old life. My friends, this should not be. Then from 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then Hebrews 3, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's a great truth here. Sin and its deceitfulness are pressing on us daily. We need that daily transformation, that daily uh, dose of reality with capital R, the reality of the kingdom of God, begging for the Holy Spirit to transform us. And part of that involves exhorting one another. Thirdly, practice regular reflection on the direction and fervor of your spiritual life. You'll notice in the toast that Screwtape says that people are not reflective. And the great thing is they're just hurrying along down that gentle downward slope 
comfortable, soft underfoot, and have no idea what is happening. This is one of the reasons that it is a great discipline to regularly take times to pause and reflect on your spiritual life. There's a great inventory that a friend shared with me many years ago that I think is a great thing to do, maybe quarterly or at the beginning of each month, whatever works for you, to take several hours and ideally with an accountability partner, answer some questions like this. Have I grown closer to Christ or farther away over the past whatever the period is? What are the things that are helping me grow in my relationship with Christ? List three things. What are three things that are hindering me in my relationship with Christ? What is the moment that I've felt closest to Christ? What is the moment when I've been farthest away from Christ? Is there any sin I need to repent of? Is there any thing that Christ has put on my heart that I need to embrace? What are the things where I need prayer and encouragement and accountability? Those are the kinds of questions that if you were asking them regularly or having someone who is a Christian brother or sister ask you, surrounded with uh, their love and encouragement, those are the kinds of things that prevent us from waking up years down the road and wondering what happened. No one ever, or I should say, rarely do we intend to walk full-blown into sin. But when we get on the slippery slope, it is all too easy. So reflection spiritually is very important. So some scripture about this. Uh, first from Luke 14, Jesus speaking. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Once you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. My friends, we need to reflect on what's going on with the project of our spiritual lives and where we are, what the cost is, and how the building is progressing. And again, it is a reminder that unless God, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And then secondly, um, from Revelation 2, uh, and those letters to the churches, which are so great to reread, consider therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And it's a great reminder that that word repent doesn't mean just to feel sorry. Uh, it may mean that, that may be part of it, but what the command to repent actually means is about face, to turn around, to change what your eyes are looking at, turn them 180 degrees back to Jesus and to walk toward him, to follow him as he calls us. Fourthly, aspire to be used greatly by God. And this does not mean aspire to be famous or aspire to be a celebrity. What it does mean is aspire to be abandoned to the will of God, that he might use you in whatever way he chooses. And that might be a quiet way that no one ever knows about, or it might be in a public way that a lot of people know about. But the key is to aspire, to ask God to use your life to make it count. 
There's a great book that was written a couple of years ago by some teenagers called Do Hard Things. And it is basically a call to teenagers uh, to make their lives count for something. But there really could be a call to the whole church. Um, in that book, these teenagers remind us that many of the heroes and heroines of scripture were teenagers. Now we sort of put off adulthood and don't really expect anything of teenagers until after they get out of college. And they say this is a great misunderstanding of God's call. But I would say most of us don't expect great things of other Christians. This is one of the great beauties uh, that we've talked about with the inklings and their fellowship is they believed God had given them gifts and part of their responsibility was to use them to change the world, to call those gifts out from each other and to put uh, what God called them to out there in the public stream and then to trust God for what he would do with it. They had no desire to become famous. None of them ever thought that they would become famous, but they did have a great desire to be obedient and to use their gifts for the kingdom of God. This is something, my friends, we desperately need to recover. Hear these words from Paul in Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Nothing else should distract us because nothing else is so worthy as gaining Christ. Then from 2 Timothy. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And then from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Jesus in Luke 17, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy sermons. We have only done what was our duty. And my friends, the interesting thing about this is God uses people in such different ways when they are abandoned to him. Most of us know the story of William Wilberforce and his great uh, triumph over the slave trade uh, based on his relationship with Jesus and his spiritual revival uh, in which John Newton, the great hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, played such a prominent part. But what we don't know is that one of the key characters in that was a man who had tutored Wilberforce and was on a carriage ride with him on a vacation. And the time that they spent together is what led William Wilberforce to seek John Newton out after he hadn't seen him for well over a decade and then have a conversation that ended up with Wilberforce re-embracing his Christianity in this whole crusade. We know all about William Wilberforce and John Newton, but what if that man whose name most of us will never know had not spoken his heart to Wilberforce on that carriage ride. My friends, God may use us in ways great or small, but we must put ourselves into his hands and ask for his Holy Spirit to make us useful. Fifthly, avoid celebrity worship 
an uncritical acceptance of celebrity ideas. Wow, hard to think that Lewis was thinking about this way back in 1959. Look at the last little part of Screwtape Proposes a Toast. It's all about celebrities. And he said, if you can capture a celebrity, if you're a tempter and you can get the celebrity, then tens of thousands who are following that celebrity and worshiping him, um, you'll take them right with you. Because whatever the celebrity says, even though it has nothing to do with what his field of expertise is, like rock and roll singing, because he's a great rock and roll singer, he obviously is an expert about social ethics, or not. Um, listen to this from the Word of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Of course, that's from the Ten Commandments in Exodus. But it's such a reminder that we are not to worship idols, and our culture is full of idol worship. We are not bowing down uh, before images um, like we think of in the Old Testament, images on altars of pagan gods. But we do bow down before all sorts of other cultural icons. And then uh, this uh, from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Running after idols and other gods leads to sorrow. But this world needs the saints of God, uh, and a saint is anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, but it needs the saints of God to live boldly. And then that famous passage from that great first chapter of Romans, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. The truth about God they exchanged for a lie. Lewis saw that happening in England in the 1950s, and we can certainly see it happening right before our eyes today. And celebrities being at the front of the charge in so many of these areas, and people being swept along because this person who is uh, an Instagram influencer with 30,000 views uh, who happens to look good wearing certain brands of clothing, suddenly can pronounce upon ethical issues, um, upon spiritual issues, and people like sheep, as Lewis said, just follow along because they want to be like everyone else. And then lastly, from 1 Thessalonians 5, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And here, what Paul is telling us is examine everything through the lens of Scripture, through the Word of God, through the Kingdom of God, to wear kingdom spectacles and to hold fast to that which is good. And I want to remind you, holding fast doesn't mean you have something in your closet. Holding fast means that you are holding on to the life preserver for dear life when you are out in the open sea um, despairing of help. We need to hold fast 
to what is good. And that means clinging to it, standing up for it, embracing it publicly, not hiding, uh, because the saints of God are the ones who need to be standing up for the truth. So uh, we haven't even gotten to the heart of Screwtape Proposes a Toast yet, but there is much to think about here, uh, much truth for us to digest and to apply. So uh, as we close, uh, let's say together that great, great quotation from Screwtape Letter 8. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than when a patient, no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, we confess to you how easy it is for us to be conformed like jelly to what is going on in our culture, to not want to stand out from the crowd, to want to just go along to get along. But Lord, we pray that you would so fire our hearts with courage through your Holy Spirit, that we would live boldly for the truth of the gospel, that we would follow Jesus, that we would not be conformed, that we would reflect on our spiritual lives, that we would not live a routine the same way that everyone else in our culture does, that we would not be swept away by celebrities, but instead, Lord, that our hearts would belong to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Uh, just a reminder again, if you haven't been getting the emails for class uh, and would like to get them, um, please go to St. Philip's website. If you Google St. Philip's Charleston, you'll find the church website and just shoot me an email and I'll be happy um, to add you to that list. Thank you for being with us tonight. God bless you.